Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? It's time for the tech news for Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. The epic battle between Apple and Epic Games continues, and now the U.S. Department of Justice is wading in. All right, so let's recap the story so far. Apple has a policy that any app that allows in-app purchases must use Apple's own payment system, and that means that Apple gets a slice of the pie, which ironically is not apple pie, but instead key lime pie. Epic Games, the producers of Fortnite, sidestepped this process by suggesting to players on iOS devices that they use a little workaround that would allow the players to purchase credits directly from Epic Games and outside the Apple system and then use those in the iOS game. That would give Epic the entire pie slice of Key Lime. Apple responded swiftly by removing Fortnite from the App Store and prevented anyone from downloading it further, although folks who had already 
had it were just fine. And it kind of escalated from there. What followed was a lawsuit in which Epic argued that Apple's approach is anti-competitive, that locking developers into this ecosystem was inherently unfair. And this is something, by the way, that we're seeing play out in courts all over the world right now with different people coming forward and different companies coming forward to say Apple's approach is inherently unfair. Now, the initial court's decision was a bit of a muddled affair. Neither Epic nor Apple was entirely happy about it, so both sides appealed the decision. Now, interestingly, Apple won more than it lost because the court decided that Apple doesn't constitute a monopoly, at least not in this case. And that's kind of understandable in the sense that Fortnite can be played on just about any platform, possibly even your refrigerator. So it's hard to point at this and have a court understand that this potentially constitutes anti-competitive behavior. However, the court did rule that Apple cannot prevent apps from offering links to alternative payment systems in their apps. And Apple really didn't like that. They don't want that to happen because the company has really been transforming into more of a services-oriented company after being a hardware-focused company for decades. This brings us to what's going on now. An appeals court is preparing to hear arguments from all sides about the original decision. And the Department of Justice and the state of California have both secured a little bit of time to present some arguments to the court. Now, the DOJ is not allowed to take sides, per se, but the agency hopes to prove that the lower court's decisions about Apple not being a monopoly were short-sighted, that Apple had, in fact, violated antitrust laws such as the Sherman Act. The DOJ says that the lower court's interpretation sets a disastrous precedent that weakens antitrust law, particularly in the digital landscape, and that this needs to be corrected so that the U.S. government has the ability to enforce antitrust laws and prevent any company from becoming an unimpeachable monopoly. Complicating matters is that the DOJ is ramping up its own antitrust lawsuit against Apple, so it will be important for the lawyers to present their case in a way that doesn't come across as biased. The state of California, meanwhile, is going to present arguments on how the court should treat the state's consumer protection law called the unfair competition law within the context of this lawsuit. The Washington Post reports that U.S. Customs has been maintaining a database filled with travelers' electronic data, some of which dates back 15 years. Now, it has long been an issue that people entering the U.S., including U.S. citizens returning to America, have sometimes been prompted to hand over Customs uh, access to their electronic devices. Now, U.S. courts have, for some reason, deemed this as being acceptable. Honestly, I think this very much ranks as unreasonable search and seizure, which is something the Constitution is supposed to protect us against. Anyway, there's no legal reason anyone should have to hand over their login credentials to their devices. And finding out that Customs has been downloading and storing this information for more than a decade is a huge red flag. What's worse the Post reports that essentially any employee of the agency can access any of that data. So imagine for a moment that you are returning to the United States and that you are coerced into handing your phone over to customs agents and you are further prompted to unlock your phone and then they download everything that's on your phone all without due cause. You haven't done anything wrong or at the very least you haven't done anything to warrant this kind of a search and now they have 
all of the data on your phone, all your contacts, all your calendar appointments, all of your location history, your browsing history, your photos, your documents, everything that was on that device has been downloaded and anyone within the agency has the capability of potentially accessing it. That is unthinkable, right? I mean, it doesn't take much imagination to come up with dozens of terrible scenarios where this could become a problem. Like blackmail alone is a terrible possibility. More than that, other agencies like the FBI can request and get access to this kind of database. And it starts to sound a lot like a dystopian authoritarian state. U.S. Senator Ron Wyden sent a letter to the agency last week raising concerns about this practice and saying it amounts to unfair search and seizure on American citizens. Whether anything will actually be done about this policy or if some court case finally escalates the issue so that the Supreme Court weighs in, hopefully to curtail the practice, since again, seems like a pretty clear-cut violation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, all of that remains to be seen. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how Twitter had cleaned house by deleting a bunch of bot accounts that were all pushing propaganda. And while that in itself isn't that unusual, in this particular case, the propaganda promoted the United States and its policies in places like Russia and China. Now, we often hear about coordinated campaigns meant to spread misinformation within the United States, and often these campaigns originate out of countries like China and Russia, but it's kind of odd to hear about the opposite. And now the Pentagon has ordered a review of information warfare operations that rely upon social network platforms like Twitter and Meta across all military branches. So the Undersecretary for Policy at the Department of Defense, a guy named Colin Call, has told all the branches of the military that have these kind of operations that they have to provide a full report on the scope, scale, and techniques of those programs by next month, at least according to the Washington Post. I think the concern here is that it's really bad optics for the U.S. to engage in similar tactics that Russia and China are using while at the same time, the U.S. government has slammed social networks for allowing these kind of things to proliferate here in the United States, ends up looking more than a little bit hypocritical. Now, maybe the military ops relying on these approaches would argue that the narrative they are pushing isn't misinformation. Sure, it, it puts the U.S. and its policies in a positive light, but maybe they argue this isn't lying. It's just it's just giving part of the story that they otherwise don't get. However, I suspect folks in Russia and China would say pretty much the same thing about what's going on here. And anyway, it'll be interesting to see what comes of this. Now, propaganda has long been a well-used and reliable tool around the world to spread specific messages and points of view. So I wonder if we're going to see the government create kind of a framework within which it might be okay to use that capability within the digital world. If not, what makes the digital world different from, say, dropping physical pamphlets from an aircraft onto areas in an effort to spread similar messages? That's something the United States has done frequently throughout its history, sending messages to uh, citizens in places where they can't get access to information in other ways. We've made use of those tactics in the past. So it kind of raises the question, if that sort of thing is wrong in the, the digital space, why? Like, what is it that makes it different? 
These are complicated questions, and I don't pretend to have the answers. I do find it fascinating, however. Something else that is, I hesitate to use the word fascinating, but certainly captivating, is an article that I read in Rolling Stone magazine. It is titled, How Many Women Were Abused to Make That Tesla? And the article goes into detail about the work culture at Tesla, the electric vehicle company, as well as Elon Musk's personal history with quote-unquote fraddish behavior, it's from the article, and also how seven women have brought lawsuits against Tesla alleging sexual harassment. The story even goes beyond Tesla and mentions how SpaceX engineer Ashley Kozak wrote about similar issues over at SpaceX, another Elon Musk company. I recommend this article. I will warn you, it has a lot of extremely upsetting information and allegations in it. But if those allegations are true, it really paints the corporate culture of Tesla and other Musk companies in a really terrible light. Akin to the kind of stories we heard coming out of gaming companies like Activision Blizzard and before that, Ubisoft, and before that, the stuff we heard coming out of Uber. For many people out there, news that companies in the tech sector have a particularly ugly problem with misogyny and sexual harassment is going to come as no surprise, right? This is old news. In fact, I'm sure there are listeners of this show who have either experienced or witnessed something along those lines at companies in the tech sector. But pieces like this indicate that companies really do need to work harder at stamping out these kinds of culture and that shareholders should demand more from the companies that they invest in. I mean, it's a bad investment ultimately because sooner or later, the cards come crashing down. You would rather invest in a company that has a supportive and healthy culture and not one that's predatory, I'm sure. Or, or at least I'm sure for listeners of this podcast, there are probably people out there who really don't care as long as they get a return on the investment. But they wouldn't listen to this show, right? Okay, we've got some more news stories to get to. Before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Over in the European Union, courts upheld a ruling that says Google must pay a truly enormous fine of a about $4.12 billion. Now, to be fair, that's actually a reduction of the original fine. The original fine from the first court case was closer to $4.3 billion. So Google got a deal. They they got a break. It's just $4.12 billion. Now, all of this actually stems from a case that was originally filed back in 2015 in which the European Commission ruled that Google was engaged in anti-competitive practices with the Android operating system, Uh, essentially saying Google had actively taken advantage of its enormous installed base in Europe. Something like 80% of EU citizens have an Android device. And they forced every Android device out there to have apps like Chrome and Search pre-installed on them. And that this ended up giving Google an unfair advantage in those areas because competing search and browsers were uh, not pre-installed. The original decision was handed down in 2018. So the, the case began in 2015. The decision and the fine came in 2018 because, you know, justice moves swiftly. And yeah, that meant that the original case took like three years to resolve, but Google then appealed the decision It took another four years for the appeal to work its way through the system. 
and for courts to find that Google's still guilty and still needs to pay a fine, although it's slightly lower than what it was originally, and that's where we are now. So does this mean that Google is going to have to cough up more than four billion bucks? Not necessarily. Google can appeal this decision as well, which would push the matter up to the highest court in the EU, where perhaps it could get a different decision, or maybe the fine would be further reduced. We'll have to wait and see. Mozilla conducted a study on YouTube and found that the platform's tools for telling YouTube that you don't like a particular video or you don't want to have similar content show up in your recommendations, they don't work very well, those tools. And this is interesting because I have noticed something similar in my own use of YouTube, particularly recently. But, you know, anecdotal evidence isn't real evidence. So I never brought it up on the show because I thought, well, this is just my experience. What if it's an outlier? But in my case, uh, I was watching a lot of video essays about different types of things, including a ton about pop culture. And it was really just, you know, critiques about different things like movies or series and really well thought out and well-researched arguments. But I noticed that some of the video essays that were creeping into my recommendations weren't really video essays. They were really just thinly veiled manifestos for right-wing talking points. Now, I am not a right-wing person by a long stretch. I'm sure this comes as no surprise to anyone who's listening to me. Uh, This is not me judging that point of view. Rather, it's just me saying, that's not my worldview or my philosophy. And in most cases, my opinions are almost the opposite of the stuff that was showing up in these videos that were posing as critiques on pop culture. So I started tagging those videos as don't recommend this channel to me because I didn't want to see them anymore. They weren't interesting to me. I didn't agree with the point of view. I just found them frustrating. But then I would get nearly identical videos. Now, it might be a different channel and a different host, but the videos contained the same talking points, the same tactics of presenting right-wing ideology disguised as a video essay on pop culture. And I just felt like I was constantly trying to knock down one recommendation and I would just get a different one that was essentially the same thing the next day. Well, according to Mozilla, my experience is by no means unique. The organization used a tool to measure how effective YouTube's features are. The tool Mozilla used could track when viewers were clicking on dislike, not interested, don't recommend channel, and remove from history to see how much of an effect that had on the recommendations engine. Would it prevent similar videos from popping up in the recommendations engine or would it not? And it found that hitting dislike would reduce only 12% of bad recommendations in the future, meaning that you would still get those kinds of videos. If you clicked not interested, it was worse. It only prevented 11% of similar material popping up in recommendations. If you chose don't recommend channel, it was a little bit better, but only up to 43%. So you're still less than 50% of, of reduction of those kinds of videos popping up in your recommendations. And removing videos from history prevented only 29% of bad recommendations in the future. If you're wondering how they came up with those numbers, they had a control group that did not hit any of those dislike features at all. And so what they were doing was seeing how many similar videos were popping up in the recommendations of someone who wasn't 
taking these measures versus people who were. And that's how they got those reductions. Now, YouTube reps say that the recommendation engine doesn't automatically prevent all similar material from popping up largely to avoid creating echo chambers. And that makes sense. I can agree with that, right? You don't want tools to end up funneling people into very narrow points of view and then potentially escalating that and creating extremists. That makes sense. But at least in my case, it wasn't like I was getting videos that had well-reasoned arguments made in good faith in an attempt to convince me that the point of view represented in the video was a valid one. Instead, I was getting videos that were reinforcing concepts that I fundamentally disagree with, and they weren't supporting those concepts. It's not like they were creating an argument to support the ideology. It was just a repetition of those talking points. Anyway, the study seems to show that YouTube does not prioritize user feedback, which could explain why some people have a frustrating experience when they're on the platform, me included. Both Uber and Rockstar have been hit by hackers, uh, possibly the same one. And in Uber's case, the company has issued multiple statements in the wake of the attack. They said that the attacker gained access to Uber's systems by compromising an Uber EXT contractor's account. Uh, Uber was able to detect this intrusion. That's being kind because they left messages. But Uber responded by locking out the account and a few other accounts that could have been compromised. But they didn't, they weren't able to do this until after the attacker had already gained access to numerous tools which included them gaining access to and then posting within the company's Slack channel. Hardly a low-profile move. It's not the kind of thing you do if you're trying to be super sneaky and uh, really embed yourself within a target's system. This is something you do in order to make a point or to needle a target or whatever. Now, Uber is investigating if there was any material impact to the company, so they're looking into what, if any, information the attacker actually accessed during this incident and maybe potentially downloaded. During the incident, some of Uber's customer support features were disabled, but beyond that, it sounds like the disruption wasn't that noticeable outside the company. Though again, until Uber has a better idea of what information the attacker might have accessed and potentially copied, it's really hard to judge how bad this attack was uh, I mean, the attack itself was bad because getting that level of access is not great, but how damaging it was remains to be seen. Uber is working with the Department of Justice and the FBI in an investigation into this. And as it stands, the chief suspect for the attack was the hacking group Lapsus, uh, L-A-P-S-U dollar sign, which has been on quite the run this year, having been named responsible for hacks into companies like Cisco and Microsoft and Okta, among others. I mean, these are companies that are known for helping create a more secure environment, and they were targets of hacks by the same hacker group. So, yeah, they mean serious business. Okay, we've got a few more uh, news items to talk about. But before we get into that, let's take one more quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. 
Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, y'all, by the time you hear this episode, NVIDIA will have held a an event to announce the next generation of its GPUs or graphics processors. Uh, The code name for the new processor architecture is Lovelace, which is after Ada Lovelace, the Enchantress of Numbers. So we expect that these new processors are going to have a new kind of architecture to make them more power efficient, more powerful, that kind of thing. 
Analysts expect that NVIDIA will announce a new 40 series of cards, like an RTX 4080. The current, you know, flagship GPUs are the RTX 3080 and the 3090. So we might be getting two different 4080s and a 4090 uh, by, by the rumor mill. By the time you hear this, you'll know because the event will have happened. You can just Google it. With Ethereum shifting to proof of stake and an increased availability for graphics cards in general, maybe this will mean that the most powerful cards on the market will actually be something that gamers can more easily get their hands on if they have the cash, that is. These cards frequently cost well over $1,000. Some of them creep up to around $2,000. So it's not the type of component for a budget gamer because that's just the graphics card. That doesn't include any of the rest of the computer. But maybe this will also mean prices for the last generation of cards will go down a little because I would still love to get my hands on a 3080. I, the, the computer I use for gaming doesn't have anywhere close to the oomph of that 3080 card. Anyway, I might do a follow-up on Thursday if the company reveals anything particularly interesting. The De Montfort University Leicester over in the UK conducted a study in which researchers found that young children are losing the equivalent of a full night's sleep each week. So they're losing the equivalent of one night's sleep per week because they're staying up to be on social media on their various electronic devices. The study found that around 12.5% of all 10-year-olds wake up in the middle of the night in order to check notifications, which is a big old yikes for me. You know, one of the big reasons I got off social media was because I found myself bowing to the whims of notifications. And over the last couple of years, I've really made an effort to reduce the number of notifications I get, whether it's personal or, much to my coworker's chagrin, work-related. That's because I recognized that it was starting to harm me to have notifications pop up all the time. It was hurting my productivity, my creativity, my mental health. So. I made a real effort to reduce the notifications, which means I'm a little more slow to <laughs> respond to things than some of my coworkers. But, you know, it's better to be a little slow rather than to just have a complete mental breakdown and no longer be able to respond at all. Now, young kids, they are not necessarily going to be cognizant of the effects of these sort of behaviors of staying up and losing the equivalent of a night's sleep each week. And younger children need more sleep. They need it in order to recuperate. They need it so that they can learn more effectively and grow in a healthy way. So interrupting that process is not great. Now, I am not a parent. It is not my business to tell other people how to take care of their kids because I don't have kids. And uh, I, far be it from me, to give parenting advice. But maybe if you have kids, consider limiting screen time and maybe even putting away devices at night so that those devices aren't accessible until perhaps the next day. So just make that a regular part of the routine. That's what I would suggest. I realize that that may not be easy in a lot of households, particularly if the kids are already accustomed to always having their devices on them. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, you want your kid to grow up healthy, so it's probably a good idea to, to limit that screen time. Probably a good idea for me to do it to myself even more than I already have. 
NASA will be testing the launch vehicle for the Artemis 1 mission tomorrow, running a cryogenic demonstration. Uh, so in this demonstration, they aren't going to be firing up the engines. There's not going to be any sort of countdown or anything like that. This test is to see if the team has managed to fix the issues that led to a hydrogen leak, which in turn forced NASA to delay the launch earlier this month. So as a reminder, the Artemis program is aimed at going back to the moon. And Artemis 1 is to be an uncrewed mission, meaning there's no crew aboard. I know when I say uncrewed, it sounds like I'm saying it's not a crewed mission in the sense of it's, you know, it's egalitarian and refined. That's not what I mean, though I'm sure everyone's on their best behavior. But no, in this particular one, the Orion capsule, which would normally hold astronauts, will instead be carrying some mannequins as well as a Snoopy doll. And then it will fly off to do an orbit of the moon before returning to Earth to touch down in the Pacific Ocean. But as I mentioned, while the original launch was planned for earlier this month, a hydrogen leak to one of the four engines in the, in the launch vehicle, one of the four thrusters, uh, forced NASA to delay things. Engineers have since made repairs to the system. They found a possible cause of the leak as uh, they discovered an indentation on part of the disconnect line. And they think maybe that was the problem. And they, they repaired that. Uh, so on Wednesday's test tomorrow, the launch team will use a slower process to feed liquid hydrogen to the engines to cool them down to operational levels. And they'll do that in the hopes that this kinder, gentler approach will let engines reach the proper temperature while putting less strain on the system as a whole. If that works out, NASA could plan a new Artemis 1 launch for as early as September 27th, with October 2nd listed as a backup date should weather or some other event delay things. This is, of course, assuming that Space Force gives them the go-ahead to do this, because they do have to get Space Force's permission to launch uh, due to the fact that this is out of the, uh, the original schedule. But here's hoping it all works out. Finally, two years ago, the Chinese Lunar Exploration Program launched a spacecraft called the Chang'e 5. Uh, the name Chang'e uh, references a Chinese moon goddess, and my apologies for my pronunciation. But uh, that spacecraft included an orbiter, which would stay in lunar orbit around the moon. And it also had a lander that had a, a second spacecraft called an ascender connected to it. So this disconnected from the orbiter. The lander then touched down on the moon with the ascender put, perched on top of the lander. The lander collected samples from the moon's surface and then transported those samples to the ascender, which then launched off the lander, flew up to meet the orbiter and rendezvoused with it, transferred the sample to the orbiter, and then the ascender was uh, deorbited. It, it landed back on the moon's surface. It just said, my job is done, and it detached, went back and landed on the moon. The orbiter, meanwhile, left lunar orbit, returned to Earth, and brought the samples back. So China became the third country in the world to retrieve samples from the lunar surface, the first being America, the second one being Russia. Well, now, two years later, Chinese scientists say that within that sample was a very small crystal that contains helium-3. Now, this is not 
totally unexpected because scientists have long hypothesized that there are large helium-3 deposits on the moon. But you might wonder, well, why is this even important? Well, helium-3 could potentially be the fuel used by future fusion reactors. A huge advantage of helium-3 is that the fusion process would not produce any radioactive particles, but it would produce a lot of electricity, energy. However, helium-3 is pretty darn scarce here on Earth. So it could mean that the moon becomes a major source of fuel for the future. All of that is still pretty far off because the tech for creating sustainable fusion reactions remains elusive in general and for helium-3 in particular. But if we were able to solve those issues, it would mean that the moon would become a really valuable resource for our energy needs here on Earth. In fact, it could become a battleground as various nations try to establish a presence on the moon for the purposes of mining resources that could fuel stuff here on Earth or beyond. Sounds a lot like a Heinlein short story. Those always turn out great. All right, that's the news for Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. Y'all, I should also report that uh, I will be on vacation next week. And so I will likely be putting up some reruns. Maybe I can record a couple of updates if I have enough time to do so to older episodes. I'm going to do a quick look and see if there are any that I can maybe do some short updates for and and give you some new content. But um, yeah, I'll be gone for a week and then I will return and I will be re-energized. Maybe. It'll all depend on whether we get hit by hurricanes while I'm on vacation. We'll see. But if you have any suggestions to send me, then there are a couple ways of doing so. One is to download the iHeartRadio app, which is free to download and use. You can navigate over to the tech stuff part of the app. There's a little microphone that you can click and you can leave up to a 30 second message for me and let me know what you would like to hear on future episodes. Or you can reach out on Twitter. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.